Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Brisbane podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. You've joined us in our series, First Peter, Hope in the Midst of Suffering. In this series, we will discover how to experience hope within suffering through learning how to embrace love, submission, and identity in the midst of challenges as we follow the example of Christ. We pray that this message is a blessing. Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Peter 3, verses 15 to 16. And it says this, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. This is the word of the Lord. Awesome. Grab a seat, friends. Awesome. I don't think I got round to this. My name's Alex. Feel free to call me Al. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. My absolute delight. And it's also delightful because after the service today, uh, we're going to move from monologue, me preaching, uh, to dialogue and open Q&A. We're going to call it Q&A because we just assume that we don't have all the answers, but we can make some headway in forms of a response. And so if you're here, would like to join us and raise your questions, both maybe objections, criticisms, or even curiosities around the Christian faith, we just want to say that there's no questions off limits because we think the God of the Bible invites questioning. And so if that's you, feel free to join us. We kick off at 6 p.m. And I'd just say, if we finish at 5.20, you've got a 30-minute window to get yourself some dinner, come back here, pour yourself a cup of tea, and then we engage in conversation. So we hope that's a benefit to you. We've got lead minister, Pastor Michael Hands with us for that as well. And so, and James Allen's going to be facilitating that Q&A through a particular medium we call Slido. That's enough from me. Let me pray, and we'll jump into the scriptures. Why don't you bow your heads and we'll pray. Father, we thank you that, um, yeah, sure, Lord, I, I have studied this week and I've prepared something. But what is of great value, Jesus, is by your Spirit. And so, Father, we invite you to speak to each one of us. As your word goes out, would we sit under it, not over it? And would we find ourselves changed by it? into the image of your son, Jesus, for we pray this in his name and all of God's people said, amen. Amen. Now you're gonna judge me. I um, I got a C.S. Lewis story, I'm sorry. (laughs) One thing that's intrigued me about this guy named C.S. Lewis, just if you need to know a few facts about him, three things, he was an Oxford Don, taught literature at Oxford University and uh, he wrote children's novels, the likes of which are called The Chronicles of Narnia. But one of the things that strikes me about his life is actually how he came to faith. And the fact that when he considered himself having finally met Jesus, he was sort of reluctant to have done so. Um, Many of you don't know, but this guy was a thinker. He was a creative. He was a genius. He didn't just write children's novels that were sort of like an allegory for the philosophical tenets of the Christian faith. He also wrote a whole host of books that were sort of responses to objections that people were making in the time and culture of which he lived. Things like the problem of pain, mere Christianity, a whole host of things. The result of which is a, it was a wonderfully informed modern church because everyone just quotes him these days from the pulpit, myself no different. 
But when he was um, thinking about Christianity, he would have first described himself as an atheist, someone who doesn't believe that God exists, in fact, disbelieves in God's existence. And then he moved on to something called pantheism, which is broadly the belief that God is everything. And I think if you talk to the average punter on the street today, they would sort of have somewhat of a pantheistic framework for life. We wouldn't say God's knowable, but maybe God is everything. God is divine, but we don't know what he's like. It's a pretty typical street answer for what people believe about reality these days. But it wasn't until he started talking with his good friend J.R. Tolkien, actually on a walk one night in 1930, around November, and they were walking down this pathway within the courts of Magdalen College, and it's called Addison's Walk. And uh, it follows this river, follows a wall, surrounded by trees, and Lewis and Tolkien started talking about the things of faith and the things of God. And that night he goes home and finally gives his life over to God and goes from being an atheist to a pantheist, now to a theist, and in fact, a Christian. And he writes these words describing that event. Here's what he said. You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen, night after night feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him so I, who I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me, that in Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. Now here's my question. What was it that they did that led C.S. Lewis to convert to Christianity? Now, as you know, we've been walking through this sermon series through the book of 1 Peter, and the phrase that we've got for the entire series is, quote, hope in the midst of suffering. And the point of the series is really to help us understand how do we live missionally in the world if the world is the way we didn't choose it to be? What does it look like to faithfully follow Jesus, yet be relevant to the culture within which we find ourselves? And Peter's answered that for us with week one, we looked at hope in the midst of suffering. Week two, I actually can't remember what I preached on for the last few weeks, but if you want to check it out, church.nu forward slash Brisbane forward slash podcast. But here's the bottom line takeaway. The bottom line takeaway is that what I think we discover in this text today is an answer to that question I've got. What did it take C.S. Lewis to get converted to Christianity? And what Peter gives injunction for in this passage, I think some of the answer, and there's three things I want to unpack today, maybe two, maybe three, um, as we walk through this particular passage. These three things are this. One, God wants a people who will share their faith, open their lives, and know their reasons. One, a people who will share their faith, two, open their life, and three, know their reasons. So number one, share our faith. If you've got the passage open with me, this is verse 15, and Peter says these words. He says, always be prepared to give an answer. Always be prepared to give an answer. That's what Peter says. That's the text that comes to us this afternoon. Now, what I've realized in my own journey as a Christian is I think there's sort of two postures we can take whenever we want to have an impact in the world, whenever we want to make a difference in the world. I unpack this in week two of our sermon series, but I want to think about it in a really particular way this afternoon. And those are two kind of postures that I want to call the separatist posture and the conformist posture. You'll see a table behind me on the screen. And I think there's two ways we can think about engaging in the world as Christians, that if we're not critical about, we can fall into one or the other side of the camp. So let me explain what I mean. If you find yourself in the separatist, um, in the separatist thing, your goal is to share the gospel. I'm different from the world out there, and so my goal to be faithful to the call of God and the mission of God in the world is I need to share 
the gospel. I need to preach out loud. I need to be the answer God has for the world. And the reputation these kinds of people often find themselves having is they're sort of more combative, you know? Think of the street preacher down the road who's just calling out people's sins and they're like, I didn't ask you, bro, but he's just yelling anyway. He's coming across as combative, as a battler. He's more separatist. And what, it, what usually people on the inside of this sort of uh, part of the camp think is, um, is that I'm being faithful to the call of Jesus and I am presenting the worldview of Jesus to those outside of my community. That's what the separatists can often find themselves thinking if they're not critical. But here's what outsiders think. Outsiders just think, oh, you're irrelevant and you're different from me. I don't see, you're not proximate to me at all. You're not close to my life. You're irrelevant. And ultimately, what these kind of individuals find themselves thinking is that if you want to be part of this community, you need to believe what I believe. That's the separatist. And here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that's entirely wrong. I'm saying that's just insufficient in one side of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is what we might call the conformist camp. And the conformist goal is I want to be a friend to the culture. I want to embed myself within the culture. I want to be like a chaplain to the world outside and in a sense become like them. But the risk is, the failure could be that in trying to be conformed, you do indeed conform. And here's what people therefore think about Christians who tend to conform. You're just indistinguishable. There's nothing different about your life, nothing different about your worldview. You're no different from me, therefore, do you have anything different to offer? And the answer is, well, possibly not. There's a big risk in being a conformist. Here's what the conformist thinks, though. They think they're being faithful, not with the worldview of Jesus in talking about it, but with the way of Jesus in behaving like it. Radical hospitality, opening up our home, spending time over lunch with friends. But here's what ends up happening, that you become indistinguishable from the culture and often, membership's simply this. Oh, everyone just believes what they want. Beliefs don't matter. Here's what you end up doing. One camp ends up sacrificing the way of Jesus for the worldview of Jesus articulated to the culture. The other side of the spectrum ends up sacrificing the way of Jesus for the sake of being able to articulate the worldview of Jesus. And culture misses out. Neither one makes an impact because people look at the church, separatist or conformist, and think you're either indistinguishable, no point of difference, or you're irrelevant, you're not near me. So when Peter says, be prepared to give an answer, what kind of answer does he imagine us to give? The Greek word here is apologia. And apologia is a word used multiple times in the New Testament, and it, we, get, we translate it answer, but another way to translate it is defense. And this is the word from which you sort of get those YouTube people on, like, online who become like what you might call apologists and if you've looked at those guys, that's awesome. They will help your faith and your journey in following Jesus. But one of the reputations that can often come across in the world of apologetics is that it's purely about defending in response to questions with answers we've got about how we're so right and everyone else is so wrong, which is deeply unfortunate. And it doesn't do justice to the way in which this term apologia is used by the New Testament uh, time and time again. So I wanted to go to a story in the book of Acts, Acts 26, verses 1 through to 28, it's a story of Paul giving his defense before King Agrippa. And the word Paul uses in verse 1 of chapter 26 is this, apologia. Paul is brought, he's on his missionary journeys. Paul is brought, brought before King Agrippa. And King Agrippa says, hey, you're causing all this commotion in the Mediterranean basin. People want to do away with you. People want to kill you. Uh, you're making all the idle workshop places go bankrupt because you're presenting this other God that seems to be bigger than all the gods that we've got little voodoo sort of temples around. And 
And so Paul says, cool, I'm going to give my defense. Or verse 1 says, I'm going to give my apologia. And then he goes and talks and talks about how the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, who revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, prophesied by the prophets of old, is now he who's revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And he makes this big claim that the God of old, worshipped by the Jews, has stepped into history in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, verse 26, and I want you to see this. It's fascinating. It's on the screen behind me. There's two ways to translate what King Agrippa says back to Paul. Just look at this with me. One in the NIV is, Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Or in other words, Paul, don't think I'm so easily persuaded. Or the King James Version says it like this, wow, you almost persuaded me to become a Christian, Paul. Different ways to translate the same thing. Ultimately saying something different, Paul, in the second sense, you genius, you've persuaded me so easily. So what's, what's King Agrippa saying? Well, here's what's happened. Paul was given the opportunity to give an apologia, and if we're not careful, we'll think of that just as a defense, someone on the back foot. But the person to whom Paul gives the apologia themselves finds themselves responding by saying, Paul, you're on the front foot, bro. You think you can try and convince me? You want me to actually become a Christian? What am I saying? What's the takeaway point? It's simply this. Giving an answer or giving a defense is not purely about being on the back foot as a Christian responding to questions of culture or friends or family. It's actually about being on the front foot, being so passionately enraptured with the thought that your friend or family member or colleague might meet Jesus himself. It's actually not about defense, it's about offense. It's not about being on the back foot, it's about being on the front foot. Why? Because Christians have this treasure in our jars of clay. We actually know that we've got something worth giving. We know that there's something in our hearts, something in our lives, something in our relationships with Jesus Christ, God in flesh, that we actually want other people to experience. Now, here's why this is important. This is important because this is going to challenge the conformist camp. Now, here's what I like to think. Sometimes I fluctuate. Sometimes I'm like, no, I don't want to stick out like a sore thumb. I don't want to make too much of a difference in my, not too much, sometimes I don't want to sort of like, I don't know, be the odd one out in, you know, the world. And so I just conform and everyone's my friend. Other times, I'm like, I'm just a loudmouth. I'm like, you should meet Jesus. You should change your life. You should repent. You should come meet this guy that I claim to follow who I met when I was 15 years old. He'll do everything different in your life. And I oscillate. I think we all oscillate. And I think that's why this text is so helpful because it's going to challenge us at different seasons in different parts of our lives. And this, this first point will challenge those who want to conform or find themselves more easily able to conform in this world. What does it say? actually challenge us to say we actually have something worth sharing. That our job's not just to be like our friends in the world. Our job is actually to share Jesus Christ with the world. To see them meet him, know him, love him, follow him, worship him, and in that journey become like us. Not because we're so special, but because we're apprenticed after Jesus at the same time. So why do I say all this? I say all this because to give an answer is to partner with God in commending Jesus Christ to the world. (laughs) That in other words, to use the words of Jesus, talking about the parable, he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought. What's the takeaway point? The takeaway point is, do we remember what we found? If you do, you will share your faith. Do we remember what we found? If you do, you will share your faith faith. If the first part challenges the conformist, then the second part I think will challenge the separatist, the person who thinks I just need a holy club on a Sunday. I just need to separate myself from the world. Um, 
And here's what the text says. It says, to anyone who asks you, I wanna talk about opening our lives. This will be my second and last point. So journey with me here. Now this text assumes people are asking us, right? I actually love that about this passage. It assumes if you're a follower of Jesus, people are gonna ask you questions to which he is the answer. Do you see that there? Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you. Which for me, I sit there and go, now why is it possible that people couldn't be asking me questions? And I think that table I gave us at the very start is really helpful to unlock an answer to that question, why? Well, think about it. If you think your sole goal is to separate yourself into a holy huddle, then there's gonna be no non-Christians in your life that are gonna ask you questions, right? Christianity just becomes a Sunday club. And on one level, like, that's understandable, but on a deeper level, goodness me, there's a whole world out there waiting for hope, meaning, truth, value, purpose, joy, eternity, but if we find ourselves leaning more towards Christianity is about a holy Sunday club, all I need to do is be encouraged by believers around me, separate myself from the world, then that could be one way by which to articulate why people aren't asking us questions. The other end of the spectrum is actually, people aren't asking you questions, but you're giving them unsolicited answers. You know when someone gives you unsolicited advice, and you're like, didn't ask for that, bro? That's really encouraging and humbling all at the same time, particularly if it's true. But I think it's possible for Christians who lean more towards the separatist way of things actually to be the kinds of people that are giving unsolicited gospel to, the, to a watching world that never asked for it. Now, is it true that the world needs Jesus? Yes. Is it true that our family and colleagues, if they truly discovered the depth of God's love, would want it? Yes, I think so. But what's the journey from they have an ultimate need and I have an ultimate answer? And if the journey is, well, I just shout loudly in the public square, or I go to town on my keyboard, or I give someone unsolicited gospel to a question they had not asked, then actually we're working against ourselves. I think that table could be really helpful as we think through why, why could it be the case that no one's asking us questions? Now, here's what Peter assumes. He assumes that people ask us questions because they see a different way of life. And the reason I think that is because this text, always be prepared to give an answer, comes sandwiched between two injunctions, two imperatives, two directives, two challenges to shape our behavior. Think about this. Start of verse 15 says, in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Do you think that'll change your life? Yes. On the back end of this injunction, it says, do this with gentleness and respect. So he says, be prepared to talk but only do that within the context or the sandwich of a different changed life. Or in other words, people will be prepared to hear the worldview of Jesus from your mouth when they see the way of Jesus from your life. Do you see that there? Which means we need to open our lives for people to see this, to be prompted to ask the question to which, goodness me, this good news is the answer. This is the gospel. This is the story of Jesus, now there's this one writer, Michael Frost, he's a missiologist in Sydney, and he said it so helpfully, you'll see it behind me on the screen. He said, the problem is we think we should share our faith and live our lives. Don't think too hard about what you do with your life. Don't think too hard about your money habits. Don't think too hard about how you spend your time. Don't think too hard about the websites you log on to. Don't think too hard about that, just live your life. If you really wanna be faithful, share your faith. But he says this, what would it look like if we lived our faith? and shared our life. What would that look like? Well, actually, this text would become true for us because people would ask questions, which really is prompted by the kinds of life we're living and sharing, the answer to which is the good news of 
Jesus. There's an old leadership quote by John C. Maxwell. He said something like this, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And let me just inflect that. People will not care to hear about our beliefs as Christians until they see our behavior that's changed, ultimately otherworldly, inspired by divine love. People will not wanna hear the worldview of Jesus from our lips until they've seen the way of Jesus with, I wanna say hips, because it rhymes, but (laughs) let's go there. That feels good. You know what I'm saying. So here's some practical tips. And I was having coffee with a friend this week and we're talking about how like we have these high ideals of evangelism, seeing people meet Jesus. But then we're like, how do we translate that into everyday life? And then he just began to tell me, um, he goes to the gym quite often, he's befriended the owner of the gym. And sometimes they just work out together. And it started by him firstly working out, having a conversation, then they swapped numbers and then they started working out together and now they go for coffee together and I'm not describing a series of dates, I'm actually describing their lives and shared friendship. He started to open up his life with one another. And I just wanna say, sometimes Christians, we're so silly. Like, sometimes I'm like, man, I wanna make a difference. Man, the barista I meet out there on the street, I actually want them to meet Jesus. And then I forget that I can just ask them for a coffee myself. You know what I mean? We just keep things so complex, so ethereal, so nebulous. And so three quick things. I just say, if you wanna make a difference in the world, share your faith, open your life, And how can you open your life? Really simply. If you meet someone, ask for their number. Take them out for a coffee. Shout them a meal. Have them around for a board game. In other words, be human as a follower of Jesus in their midst. Let's come back down to earth. Let's share our lives with people. And the last thing I want to say, um, was my time at 25 minutes or 20? Yeah, great. This is the last thing I want to say. We need to share our faith, we need to open our life. And lastly, we need to know our story. I'm gonna skip know the reasons. One of the practices we've got in our small group is, um, is every few weeks we invite someone to share their story. And it's fascinating how relationship is lubricated because you get to know someone through their story. And on Thursday night, um, someone shared their story and it's hard for them not to share without crying and it's hard for us as a small group not to listen without crying at the same time. And just asking someone three simple questions. Who were you? What happened in your life? And who are you now? With Jesus as the main character. Has a profound effect, not just on the listener, but on the person who writes their story, shares it with one another. Now, when I was in London five years ago, uh, we did this youth event in the heart of the city. I think it was Royal Albert Hall or whatever. And we go there and we invite Louis Giglio, who comes over and preaches and he stood before a packed room of a hundred or so, not hundred or so, hundreds of young teenagers from all around London. And he said, if you wanna be able to be faithful to this injunction, always be prepared to give an answer, an apologia to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. Here's what you think you need to do. Be smart. You think you need to be able to articulate. You think you need to know the scriptures, left, right, back to front. No, 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 no. You need to just know how to share your story. Why? Because the most irrefutable argument, the most powerful apologetic, the most robust defense is what Jesus Christ has done in your heart. No one can take away from your experience with him. No one can rob you of your ability to tell that story. And so here's the questions I wanna ask us as a church. If we're gonna share our faith and open our lives and have something meaningful to share with those who don't know Jesus, what if we got really good at telling our story? Not with ourselves as the main character, but with him as the main character. 
So three questions as I close. Can I invite you to stand? And we're gonna step into worship. We've got communion this afternoon. There's a whole host of ways we get to worship together. Um, and so, but here's the questions I've got for us. Who were you before you met Jesus? What did he do in your life? And who are you now? And my hope is, as the music starts playing and we as a community start reflecting on those questions, that we would remember what we found. And in remembering what we found, we'd be the kind of people who share that and open our lives so that ultimately, what Peter says at the end of this passage, others in our world would know this hope, right? So let me ask those questions. Maybe you wanna close your eyes and we can take some time here. We've just got time to think about this. We've got time to respond right now. And I wanna ask, who were you before you met Jesus? And you might say, well, Alex, I grew up in a Christian home and there's no major before and after for me. I don't care, there's, there's a time. Maybe it was a time when you started taking Jesus more seriously, even though you had some kind of seed form of faith and following him beforehand. Awesome, that's fine. Maybe you don't remember that there was a time beforehand, but you're able to articulate the way in which this old self now battles the new self. That's fine too. Who were you before you met Jesus? Why don't you just bring that to remembrance right now? Second, what happened? How did God intervene? What did he do? Now, for the most part, just keep your eyes closed, stay with me here. Like, I'm, I'm amongst brothers and sisters here. Many of us, if not all of us, follow Jesus in the room. All of us can answer that question. And my prayer is, as we move to the last question, there's this thankfulness that starts to well up in our hearts because there actually is an answer. God did indeed do something. I am changed because of Him. And I just want to ask you this last question. Who are you now? How's it going? And as you contemplate that question, just be honest. Maybe you've got something to be so thankful, so, great, so grateful for. Maybe it's been really tough. I think there's people in the room this afternoon who, as I read the parable from Jesus from Matthew 13, about the guy who found the pearl of great price and realized the discovery that he'd made that actually some of us are being and remembering actually what God's originally done in our hearts for the first time. And if that's you, I just want to say, why don't you come and kneel down the front with us this afternoon? If you feel your heart warming again, afresh, remembering what you've found, or in better words, what found you at first, why don't you come kneel just as a sign of surrender? We'll leave the front space nice and open. Worship's gonna start, and I'm just gonna pray. So let me pray. Father, 
thank you for saving me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for meeting me. Father, as I contemplate what you've done in my life and thinking about sharing it with others and opening my life so that others might see the change you've wrought in my life, Father, I pray, touch my heart now. Restore to me afresh the joy of my salvation. Lord, I thank you that every single person in this room has a story and none of those stories are yet over. You're still writing ink on the pages, pushing us forward as we come to know you. And so, Father, I pray, just come, Holy Spirit, right now. Move in our midst where we experience something afresh of your touch in our lives. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Friends, let's sing. Let's worship together. And as we remember of old what God did in our hearts, let's step into Him afresh in this moment right now. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you'd like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or our Facebook page. We pray that you have a great week. Be blessed.